today and then we'll pray and and begin to walk through it, see what God has for us. So Romans chapter 6, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Thank you so much that we have your book, that you've protected it down through the centuries. And when we read it, uh, we are reading your words. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us uh, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to instruct us in righteousness, to fully equip us for every good work that you created for us to do. It is a word that is Alive, It's powerful. It's like a sword. It cuts between the marrow and, 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 and it gets right down into the core of us. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And it gives us the capability to see life from your perspective. So thank you for this good gift. Help us to give our attention to it this morning as it deserves, as you deserve. And help us to learn and grow and become more like our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, again, just a a speed-through review. We're in the book of Romans, which is Paul's theological treatise on the doctrine of salvation. He begins, uh, in a sense, with the statement of the gospel, what the book is about in verses 1, uh, 17, and 18 or 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God, or how to have a right relationship with God, is revealed from faith to faith. It's all about faith in what God has done for us. Just as it was written in the Old Testament, so it is revealed in the New And then he begins to explain in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, why we need the righteousness of God to be revealed to us, how to have a right relationship with God. Because he tells us, you come into this world not having a relationship with God. In fact, you come into this world as a sinner, and then you continue to sin, 
and you are deserving of God's wrath. The key word in that section is the word condemnation. We are condemned for our sin. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5 and verse 21, he explains to us how we get God's righteousness. He said why we need it, and then he says this is how you get it, how you get a right relationship with God. And it is through justification by faith in Jesus Christ. He explains it in, in full detail in those chapters, in real deep language, in the, in the last half of chapter 3, and then he gives a long uh, Illustration of that from the life of Abraham in chapter 4 and chapter 5. He talks about all the benefits that we have in Christ. And then he ends with this uh, parallel view of the first Adam brought sin and death into the world compared to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought justification and life into this world. And where sin increases in the world, God's grace superabounds is how the end of chapter 5 put it and then we come to chapter 6 and we might think well is that isn't that all that we need to know why we need it and how we get it no there's more to know and and this section that is chapter 6 through chapter 8 is all about what we need to know in regards to our relationship to sin our relationship to the law and our relationship to the holy spirit It's summed up in the one word, sanctification, a word that's right in our text that we read uh, towards the end of it. Sanctification. What's that big theological word mean? Well, it means to be set apart from sin unto God as his possession and for his use. That's the short form of that definition. And so this section, this third major section of the letter is explaining how God has set us apart from the penalty and power of sin and set us apart unto life in the Holy Spirit. But there's three main points or principles that he's giving us in this section, and the first of those is that we're dead to sin. That's the message of chapter 6. We're dead, no longer dead in sin, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then we get to chapter 7, and we'll see it um, beginning next week, that we are dead to the law. That's oftentimes misunderstood, but essentially what he's saying is we're no longer uh, dead in condemnation that the law brings. The law brought condemnation. We are dead to that. We are alive. That's chapter 8. We are alive in the Spirit in chapter 8. Beautiful, beautiful flow of thought, and it's important that we get it. So we started out chapter 6 in the verse 11 verses and saw that Paul is talking about our position in Christ, that we are united with Christ. That's why we're dead to sin. We're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And just as he died to sin and rose to new life, that we have died to sin, the penalty and the power of it, and we've been risen to a new life when we put our faith in Christ. The, the body of sin was crucified. Well, that means dead. Right? Doesn't mean like a hard day. It means you're dead. Dead. The body of sin was dead. The old man was rendered null and void, he says in those verses. But we know that we have a problem, and that is that we still struggle with sin. We live in a body that still struggles with temptation and sin and so on. But 
keep in mind this very important principle uh, regarding our position, and that is that we are dead to sin, both its penalty and its power, and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's verses 1 through 11. And then, in verses 12 through 14 that we looked at last week, he says there are two ways that we can present our life, two presentations of life. We can present our life to sin, to be used as a weapon for unrighteousness, or we can present our bodies, the members of our bodies, to to God and become a weapon of righteousness in, in the spiritual warfare. And he's making the point, it's like, because of your union with Christ and sin's power and dominion and authority over your life having been done away with, you should not let sin reign in your mortal body and you shouldn't present yourself as an instrument or a weapon to be used by sin in ungodly purposes, but rather you should let righteousness reign in your life and present yourselves to God as a weapon to be used by him for his glory and his purposes. And that's where we ended up last week at the end of verse 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but grace. So he's kind of transitioning here Began verse 12 with, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make it uh, obey its passions. And he ends with, sin has no dominion over you. Why would you let sin reign? That would be a terrible choice, right? That would be like, okay, picture it. As, as a sinner, I was chained and bound by sin. I, I, I couldn't move without sin you know, commanding me. I couldn't choose righteousness. I was bound to it, wrapped up with chains, uh, could, just not free at all. And Christ came, he died for our sin. We believe that, and the chains are broken. We sing about that in the songs that we oftentimes say. The chains are broken. It's let loose. Now I can step away from those chains. And I'm over here, and I should be living in righteousness for the glory and honor of God. I have the freedom to do that. Think of it now. At times we say, no, but I kind of like that over there. I think I'll pick up that chain and I'll wrap it around me again. You know, because I like that sin. I like it. How ridiculous is that? But that's what he's talking about. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body because sin has no dominion over you. Why? Well, because you're united with Christ, verses 1 through 11, and because you are not under law but under grace, he says. And that brought us to verse 15, which is the next section. So those were two presentations of life, 12 through 14, and now he talks about two paths of life in verses 15 through 23. And he begins with another question. Now, remember verse 1 of chapter 6 began with the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer was by no means. And, and then here we have another question. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? But before we take up Paul's question, let me ask you a few more questions that relate to what he means here. Is it okay for me to covet long for, go for, 
uh, no matter what the cost, in a sense, even if it harms someone else, it's okay for me to covet what other people possess. You know, I covet their car, or I covet their home, or I covet their spouse, or I covet their children, or I covet their job. Is it okay for me to covet what other people possess? Is it okay for me to speak with harsh words when I get annoyed by someone? Is that, is that okay? Is it okay for me to drink in excess and become inebriated? Is it okay for me to keep more fish than what the fish and game rules allow? Is it okay for me to keep a fish that I've hooked in the belly instead of the mouth? Hmm. Well, it's, a, it's just a fish. It's, is it okay? Hmm. Is it okay for me to go 40 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone? I, I know. You attend your regular, you know that I like to go to the road. So much uh, application that we can see in the road. Is that okay? Is it okay for me? To yell at my children, I don't have any children living in our home anymore, I'm too old for that, but is it, would it be okay for you to yell at your children and call them names to get them to obey you? Is it okay for us to take advantage of the grace of God? I mean, that is essentially the issue that Paul is addressing in this latter half of chapter 6. He asks the question, again, that looks very similar to what he asked in verse 1. In verse 1, he raised the issue of whether a believer should ever think that it's okay to continue to live in sin because the superabounding grace of God would be highlighted. Or maybe more likely he's answering what the objector to what he taught in the gospel would say, well, that's what your teaching would lead to, someone thinking that they could continue to live in sin because it would be a good thing for God's grace to be highlighted all the more because where sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. And then in verse 15, it looks like he's repeating the, that question again, but let's look at them kind of side by side. Do you have them side by side or up, up and down? So in verse 1 first, Put that up if you would. Verse 1 first. That's verse 6. Oh, that's 1? Oh, I see a 6 in front of it. Okay, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue? Notice that way that's written. Continue in sin that grace may abound. And then in verse 15, again we read, What then? Are we to sin? Notice it doesn't say continue in sin, but... Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, I think the difference in these two questions is important. In verse 1, Paul is dealing with the person or the objector, or the objector who thinks that it is okay to have an unchanged lifestyle after becoming a Christian. You just continue to live like you want to. After all, now you're saved. You don't have to worry about it. And his answer to the first question was, that such a view is unacceptable. That's what he means by may it never be. And the reason is because believers are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it means that they're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So they shouldn't let sin reign in their mortal body. They shouldn't continue to live in sin, have a lifestyle of sin. No, quite the opposite. 
in verse 15, he's dealing with a believer who thinks, or the objector who would say something like this, that it's okay to commit specific acts of sin. To commit specific acts of sin because of no longer being under the law, but under grace. In other words, it's, it's okay for me to take advantage of the grace of God. I'm under grace. Take, I'm going to take advantage of it. So it might be something like this. Someone's thinking could be put this way. Since all my sins were paid for by Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, is it really that big a deal if I commit an act of sin? You can take any of those examples that I led. Wouldn't it be, it's okay, isn't it? After all, he died for all my sins, past, present, and future. Uh, He knew that I would still sin, and I'm already forgiven all those sins. So, you know, the grace of God is great, and I'm thankful for it. So as long as I confess my sin, isn't it really that big a deal? Really? If I commit an act of sin? Doesn't John say, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just for giving my sins and cleanses me from all unrighteousness? So the first half of the chapter dealt with the position of the believer in Christ. And because they're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, sin's power over them has been rendered null and void. And, and the second half of chapter 6 deals with the practice of the believer. Not the position, but the practice. Now, they're, they're mixed, obviously, in the whole chapter, it's mixed, but the focus is more on the practice of the believer based upon their union with Christ and being under grace and not under the law. So while it is true that believers are under grace and, and not the law, that doesn't mean, that does not mean that it's okay for them to think that their acts of sin are insignificant. And Paul's made that very clear in verses 12 and 13, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but present the members of your body to righteousness as a weapon of righteousness be used by God for his glory and his purposes. So he's already made it pretty clear that would just be wrong thinking, right? So Paul's brief answer, his initial response is found in verse 15, by no means. That's what he said in verse 2 regarding the question there. By no means. And and I've already noted this to you, but maybe you've forgotten that whenever Paul uses this phrase, and he uses it repeatedly, even in the book of Romans, whenever he uses this, uh, it was essentially indicating that the objector or the question or the response of people thinking wrongly, well, they, they, they have the right premise, or it may be involved in their question or, or their objection, but they have the wrong conclusion. They have the wrong conclusion. So, uh, what I mean by that is, yes, believers are uh, under grace, right? Under the, they are under grace. That's the right premise. We're under grace, But that doesn't mean a person can commit specific acts of sin with impunity, with no thought that God will bring some punishment or discipline uh, to them. That would be the wrong conclusion. It doesn't matter anymore because I'm under grace. And God's grace will forgive all my sin. He already has done that. So the, the very thought that God's grace 
being under his grace, would give us a license to commit specific acts of sin is self-contradictory. Why? Because grace was given as a free gift, obviously. I mean, that's what grace means. It was given to us to free us from something. Sin's penalty and sin's power. So, grace doesn't free us to commit acts of sin. What it does do is it persuades us to pursue righteousness. You might want to write that down. Grace doesn't free us to sin. It persuades us to pursue righteousness. I'm going to say that a few more times as we go through this. It's so important to get that point. So the apostle emphasizes that there are two paths of life in this last section. And we are either going to be a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. Now, either God will be directing our paths or sin will hold sway over us. And there, there's no middle path. <laughs> there's no neutral path. There's only two paths. And people who think that they can remain neutral or it doesn't really matter which path that they follow because they do not acknowledge that they're going to give an account before God or they don't even believe that there is a God to, to give account to or that they think, well, you know, you live, you die, that's it. It's all over. Those people are deluded. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God has put eternity in the heart of man. Ecclesiastes, we were in that just two weeks ago, chapter 3 and verse 11. God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. Every man, if they were woman, every person, if they would be honest, they would recognize that they realize there's something after death. Death isn't the end. And so those people are deluded. And in taking such a position, they've shown that they are already enslaved to sin. They've already made that choice for the rejection of God and reliance on self. Isn't that the very root of sin? I mean, don't you see that in Satan? I will be like the Most High. I will raise myself up above God. I will not give an answer to God. You know, in fact, I will be the one in charge. And that's what people are essentially saying when it says, well, I don't believe in God or that I'm going to give an account to God. You know, I don't, I don't believe that stuff. I'm in charge of my life. My destiny is in my hands. That is the very essence of sin, the root of it. So Paul moves to a, a more full explanation of the importance of choosing the right path in life. You know, again, it's either the path of sin or the path of of righteousness. He does that in verses 16 through 23. Kind of laid out the point in verse 15, you know, and now he explains it in more detail. And he begins with what I, I term as a universal principle in verse 16. So let's read that verse again. There's an inescapable universal principle. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So let me, let me shorten that principle a little bit, or put it in simpler terms. Whoever you present yourself to in obedience, you become that one's slave. 
Remember the illustration, you've been set free. And then you would choose to go back and present yourself to sin, to be obedient to sin, temptation and sin. You're wrapping yourself up and now you're a slave again. That's basically the idea that he's saying. You make the choice. So to be obedient to sin is to become its slave. And... And that will only lead down a certain path that ends in death, both physical as well, and more importantly, eternal death. To the obedient, God, uh, to be obedient to God, then, is to be a slave of righteousness, and that leads down the path which ends in eternal life. That's right. So once again, I want you to notice that Paul... Um, calls on the knowledge of the readers. Look at what it says in verse 6. And do you not know? It's a rhetorical statement. They should know. This just goes with being a child of God. This goes with putting your faith in Christ. You should know this. And, and, and think of the world that, that uh, Paul, uh, uh, the, the culture of the, the people that Paul is writing to. Not that it has impact for us, but think of that culture. Think of that principle again. Whoever you present yourself to in obedience, you become that one's slave. Well, the reality of slavery was well known in the culture of that day. And Paul is you know, reasoning from the fact that a slave was completely at the disposal of his master, her master, right? A slave was completely at the disposal of the master. No, and no person could serve Two masters. I mentioned that verse that Jesus gave, Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and despise the other, etc. You, you cannot serve two masters. There is no possibility of compromise. And, and Paul's emphasizing that everybody is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. They're going down the path of sin or they're going down the path of righteousness. That a person might present themselves. This seems like weird language. Why would anyone present themselves to another person to become their slave, right? In that culture, where some people suggest that two-thirds of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. One-third of free people. So that's the culture. Now, we don't have that in our world, in our culture, but we should understand this. Why would someone present themselves to another as a slave, right? That's what he's kind of saying would happen. Well, that did happen in that culture. Someone would get in severe debt, and they would go and become a slave of another person until that debt was paid off. Or maybe they couldn't make enough money to live and support their family, so they would become a slave to someone else, for a, a certain lifestyle, if you will. Well, I'll bring that forward. I mean, we, we think that would just be crazy for us to say, well, I've been free. Um, Christ set me free, but I think I'm going to choose to present myself as a slave to sin again. It just seems ridiculous, right? And we know that in our heads, but that, isn't that what we do? And that's what Paul is saying. That's what you do when you choose to sin. Every time you commit a specific act of sin, you are in essence saying, uh, sin, I'm choosing to be your slave. Do you think of your sin that way? I don't think most of us do. In fact, we might be more like, well, it's just not that big of a deal because I'm under grace and not under law. Paul say, no, it really is a big deal because you're choosing to make yourself a slave to the one that you are obeying. 
So will you be a slave of sin through natural birth, right? Through, you know, we're born with the sin nature and then we commit acts of sin because that is our nature. And, and also through personal choice, we choose to, to sin. Or we'll be a slave of God by the second birth, spiritual new birth. And that produces something. It produces righteous living. Righteous living doesn't produce the second birth. It results from being born again. Righteous living is the result of second birth. So the basic assumption Paul makes is that prior to faith in Christ, every person is born into this world as a slave of sin. They're under its penalty and they're under its power. Yet, once faith is put in the finished work of Christ that we just remembered a few minutes ago, they stop being a slave to sin. In fact, they become a slave of righteousness. At the very moment that they stop being a slave of sin through faith in Christ, they begin to be a slave of righteousness. It's a universal principle. Whoever you present yourself to in obedience, you become that one's So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I assume most of us, if not all of us, have. I'm not sure that we were knowing this when we put our faith in Christ, but at that moment we became a slave of righteousness. It's like, well, I wish someone would have told me that beforehand. Really? You would wish that someone would have told you that so that you might say, well, I don't want to be anyone's slave. I'm going to make it on my own. That's what you would prefer over what you have in Christ now? And now that that you're learning this, that that is what actually happened when you put your faith in Christ, you stopped being a slave of sin, you became a slave of righteousness, you're still going to think, well, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want to be anyone's slave. Well, we'll get to that in a moment when we get to verse 18, but just keep that in your thinking. So Paul goes from, there's two paths to follow in verse 16 and the universal principle. And, he, and then he comes in verses 17 and 18 to the path of believers. So if there are only two paths in life, right? No middle ground, no more than two. Um, we can take that. Paul goes from that to say, well, let's, let's talk about the path that leads to righteousness and eternal life. And he puts it this way. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Now, I want you to notice this. Paul appropriately begins this this discussion about the path of genuine believers with the declaration of thanks to God, to God, the one who absolutely changes uh, the believer's path through the gospel. He, he does not praise or give thanks for the believers. inside. I thank you. He doesn't praise them for making the right choice. He doesn't praise them for their spiritual uh, determination or their wisdom Uh, their moral determination to turn over a new life. No, he proclaims thanks to God and God alone for what he has done in them. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. The change in paths that Paul is describing is a work of God in the lives of sinners. It's a work of God. 
Oh, how we need to hear that over and over again. It's not the result of anyone's desire to change their life or to turn over a new leaf. Now, people have those desires, but that's not what happens when you become a slave of righteousness, stop being a slave of sin. It's a work of God. Salvation is always and only the work of a gracious and merciful God, and all the credit and praise belongs to him and him alone. Amen? Amen. Okay. Do you have that bird? Can you... Push it. There, that's what it said. Yes. Amen and amen. Yes. And then Paul begins to point, uh, to get to the point that he's really making after his praise statement to God. Now, believers, believers are free. They're no longer slaves of sin. Yeah. Amen. Just seeing, just seeing. So once we were enslaved to sin, right? We were, and that, by the way, is made clear by the, the grammar that he uses. The, the verb, were, is written in what's called the imperfect past tense. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means it's continuous past. So what he's saying is what you were, always were, before you put your faith in Christ, you were continually slaves of sin. Before we were united by faith in Christ with him and his death and resurrection and came to be under grace, sin was our master. We had no choice. We were in a continual state of slavery to sin and it it was our master and we had to and we chose to obey that master. But all of that changed in a moment. In a moment when we obeyed from the heart the gospel call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the simple past tense, by the way, in that phrase, that we obeyed, became obedient. Some of the translations, you, you obeyed from the heart. That's probably the best translation of the phrase. We obeyed. It signifies a, a change occurred And it took place at the moment of faith. It's a simple past, not a continuous past. It happened in the past. When you put your faith in Christ, everything changed. It was at that moment that we were set free and we became slaves of righteousness. So our path and its end was immediately and inalterably changed. All praise be to God. Thanks be to God. I agree with Paul. So let's consider for a moment... These two verses, kind of like a, like a sandwich, okay? The two slices of bread are the condition of what we were and, and, uh, and what we are. So what we were, slaves of sin, and what we are now, if we place our faith in Christ, uh, slaves of righteousness. And what lies between the two slices of bread, you know, the meat and the cheese and the veggies, so to speak, is uh, what brought about the change. What brought about the change of paths that, that uh, those people traveled. What brought about the change in us. The change of paths in us. Well, the first ingredient then between the two slices of bread, what we were and what we are, is obedience. Obedience. And it should be obvious to us. It should be obvious to all that obedience is an essential, essential ingredient ingredient of slavery, right? What you know about slavery? It, it is the function of a slave to do what he or she is commanded. That's just simple, understandable. 
But in the context of what Paul is saying, obedience is not merely an outward, external compliance to biblical teaching or biblical commands. Rather, he says that they were obedient from the heart. From the heart. Not the muscle that's pumping blood through our body, but as Pastor Greg said a couple weeks ago, is the inner core of a person where our motives and our will and our, 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 our nature is. That's what he's talking about. God works his salvation in the innermost part of a person. And he changes their nature so that their desires even change. They no longer desire to be a slave of sin. They desire to be a slave of righteousness. And, and I w- would say that a person's heart that has not been changed is a person who has not been saved. A person's heart that has not been changed is a person who has not been saved. Their path of life hasn't been changed. So while grace is the ruling principle of the Christian life, we're under grace, not the law, living under the principle of grace is demonstrated by obedience. Obedience. Not obedience to become, but obedience because of, right? We obey because what Christ has done for us, taking our sin away and God changing our nature. Now I want to serve God. Not to become a child of God, but because I have been made a child of God by his gracious work. Thanks be to God. So the first Again, the first ingredient is obedience. The second ingredient between the two slices of bread is found in the word teaching. Uh, Your version that you're using may have the word doctrine. It means the same thing. So what is the teaching that Paul is referring to in this passage? Well, I think, first of all, we must understand that he's referring to the gospel. And the call of the gospel is to believe, right? The command of the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's what Paul was referring to in chapter 1 and verse 5 where he says his mission, his ministry was all about bringing obedience of faith. We, think, we tend to want to separate obedience and faith, but actually they are absolutely tied together. True faith results in obedience. And, and so, first of all, it has to be referring to the gospel. That was the initial teaching that changed their lives. But I think, secondly, he's also referring to the accepted teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. Those teachings that are truly life-changing. I mean, they change us, transform us from the inside out because it begins in the heart, right? Not on the outside, not external but it begins on the inside and transforms us from the inside out. John MacArthur puts it this way, No believer comprehends all of God's truth. Even the most mature and faithful Christian only begins to fathom the riches of God's word in this present life. But the desire to know God, or know and obey God's truth, is one of the surest marks of genuine salvation. Again, Obedience doesn't bring salvation. It's the result of salvation. And obedience to the teaching. 
the teaching of the gospel, what it is and how it saves you, the teaching also that flows out of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles written to us in the scripture. The, the third ingredient between the slices of bread is actually seen in the Greek word tupas. And that word is translated as standard in the ESV. So that standard of teaching. Uh, other translations or versions have that pattern of teaching or something like that pattern or form of teaching. Uh, and, and the word tupas that is used here was used initially for a mark left by something when pressed up against something else. So, for example, if you walk through mud and then you look back where you walked, you'll see a pattern that matches the bottom of the shoes that you're wearing, right? A pattern or a form. And it, it's that kind of idea. Think of it in terms of uh, how police will sometimes take a casting of a tire track from a car that they know is used in a crime. And that's how they can identify the car when they find it. It's like it, it matches the track. The, the pattern that was left matches the actual tire. Or sometimes they will find that uh, a bruise on a neck Someone was strangled, but if they look closely as, as some hours ago go by, they'll see that it was done by a rope because they can actually see the pattern of the rope on the neck. That's this word, tupas, this pattern or form uh, or standard. Now, this word was also used of molds into which molten metal was poured for making an image, maybe of a god or a goddess, or maybe it was a drinking uh, cup or a, a plate or something like that. Molten metal was poured into a cast or a mold and then taken out, and, and that's the result. The casting was the mold. So what was poured into the mold was shaped or fashioned by that, right? Now, we're going to get to the importance of that in, in just a moment. You'll see that. But that's the third ingredient, this idea of a standard or a pattern or a mold that takes place in those who have put their faith in Christ. Now, the final ingredient in our, our sandwich is the verb committed. Committed. If you have another version, it might say delivered, to which you were delivered or it might read, or to which you were given over to, something like that. Now, what is important to note with this uh, final ingredient is that it is not the standard of teaching that was committed to the believers, but rather the believers who were committed to the standard of teaching. They were delivered over to the standard of teaching. We were delivered over to, given over to, or poured into this teaching, the gospel and the sound, healthy doctrine of the church. So while it is true that what I'm doing right now is delivering to you, hopefully sound teaching, I'm delivering it to you, that is not what Paul's talking about here. He's actually talking about us as believers being delivered over to the teaching. Now let's go back to the idea of the mold. What God does, he pours us 
He doesn't pour the teaching into us. He pours us into the teaching, into the mold of biblical truth. So when God frees people from sin's dominion, he casts them into the image of biblical truth. (laughs) This is just awesome. This is wonderful. Before we put our faith in Christ and we're set free from sin, we're constantly being, you know this, squeezed into the world's mold, weren't we? We'll, we'll address that more thoroughly when we get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, but that uh, we would all recognize that. But when we believed and were set free, God be- began and continues to pour us into the mold of the Word of God. And, and the result is, the result is, we come out of that mold looking more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty awesome. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. Thanks be to God, because it's his work. Amen. We don't commit ourselves to the teaching. God committed us to the teaching. God is doing the work. We're experiencing the result. And then lastly, in verse 18, Paul reminds all the believers, that being set free from sin results in something, and that is becoming a slave of righteousness. So the believer's freedom that they enjoy is not freedom to live however they want. You know that. It's a liberty to live a righteous life, which they could never do when they were slaves of sin. Now we come to the last part of this, where Paul goes from the path of the believers, 17 and 18, back to the two paths and the end of those paths. So he moves from a description of the path of genuine believers to the two paths once again. So if it is true that there are two paths that a person can follow in life, it is equally true that there is two ends to which those paths go. Right? Two paths. Hopefully a path ends somewhere. It does. All paths do. Might not end up where you think it would end up, but all paths end. So Paul begins this final section of chapter 6 with almost an apology. Notice what he says in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It's kind of an apologetic phrase. He, he realizes that speaking of the believer's new life in Christ with the imagery of slavery, it's, it's kind of inadequate and it's kind of a sorry way to express it. Not that it's not true, but it's kind of a sorry way to express this freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom from sin's penalty and power. Life in Christ hardly feels, or it shouldn't at least, feel like being enslaved. Our walk with God down the path of life, in reality, is the greatest of freedoms, isn't it? It really is. The greatest of freedoms, that's how we should view it. But the institution of slavery was common in that day, and it sets forth an important point, and that is the total commitment to Christ that we have brought into when we put our faith in him, when we're set free from sin's dominion. And when he says natural limitations, ESV has it. I think other versions have the weakness of your flesh. He's not talking about the sinful flesh or the weakness of being a human being and not understanding everything. So I think he's probably implying that because they were relatively new believers in Christ and they had not progressed far enough along 
in the knowledge of biblical truth which they were being poured into to understand what he might otherwise say. They needed to hear, though, that having been set free from sin makes them a slave to God's righteousness. We need to hear that. Now, in the rest of the section, Paul sets forth sin over against the path sin and its end over against the righteousness and its end. So let me summarize it, verse 20, the end of 19 and, and 20 through 22. First he says that there is slavery to sin that leads to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, which then leads to bad fruit, which leads to eternal death. And then second, he states that there's slavery to righteousness that leads to good fruit, which then leads to sanctification, our key word for this entire section, which leads to eternal life. That's a summary of those verses. But think with me just for a moment uh, about what he says here. So in verse 20, you were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. What does he mean by that? When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Well, he means two things. One is that you had no ability to live a righteous lifestyle. You were under the dominion of sin. You obeyed your master. Righteousness and you were completely apart from one another. And secondly, I think he's also talking about desire. The truth is you had no desire to live a righteous life when you were a slave of sin. You just didn't. And and then he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, think back. He's talking to the believers, right? Think back. Think back to before you became a believer in Christ. Now, I think we tend to do this, particularly... If we're struggling in life and honoring God, and things are not going well for us spiritually or morally or relationally, we might tend to fall into this trap of thinking, you know, before I became a believer, it was all, it was all fun. I, I, remember, I remember back before I trusted in Christ, I'd go party all the time, you know, get drunk with my friends, have a rowdy time, we, you know, we'd do some weed or something like that. I mean, life was just, it was just kind of fun. Everything about it was fun. Hmm. I remember what it was like. That used to be my life. It may have been fun for the moment, but the end result was, you know, you, you, get, you drank too much and you started puking your guts out. Or you got a bad headache. Or you, you drank too much and smoked too much and you got in an accident. Could have killed yourself and the one with you. I'm, I'm describing my own experience. And you woke up in the morning, you didn't even know that you had been in an accident. You were so wiped out from what it, you know, from the drugs and alcohol. And it's like, yeah, that was fun. No, there was no fun about that. And the truth is, if we'd be honest, there may have been some enjoyment to it, some fun to it, but it always led to corruption and moral decay and all that. He says, you know, the truth is you look at that stuff now and you say, I'm so ashamed that I was even part of that. 
I'm so ashamed of it. It was shameful living because it wasn't righteous living. And then, then he says, for the end of those things, you know, it's death. But now that you've been set free and become slaves of God, the fruit, it's good fruit because it leads to more of your life being set apart from sin and unto God to be used by him for his purposes. And the end, how do you get a better end than eternal life, right? And then the last verse in this section, the final word on, on, on declaring that believers are dead to sin because of their union with Christ. Paul does something. He personifies sin, doesn't he? And he presents it as a master who pays a wage for what is earned. So sin is the master and he pays sinners a wage. What is that wage? Death. That is true that it's physical death, but he's not talking about that there. He's talking about eternal death. Wait, I thought it was dead, you're done. No, no, it's eternal death. Everyone lives eternally. Some in in the presence of God and some separated from his presence and his glory. The wages of sin is death. So sin will pay that, you know, the person a wage and and that, you know, comes out to be death. But in contrast, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So payment for wages earned was the principle by which we got on the path that leads to death and unmerited favor is the principle whereby we receive the end of eternal life. Death is earned. Death is earned. Eternal life, that's freely given. That's what he's saying. Freely given. What a comforting truth. What a comforting truth. The, the sinner who has fled to Christ, who escaped God's judgment, you know, what they deserve because of their sin, receives the most for the least. Eternal life for nothing. That's what we bring. We sang it last week, empty hands I bring. There's nothing that we offer to God. It's what he offers to us. And then what he does in us. So, Let's end this up. There's a choice for each of us to make, right? There always is. We, we can present ourselves to sin and become a slave, travel down the path that leads to eternal death, or we can present ourselves to God, which leads to righteousness, and that ends up traveling down the path that goes to eternal life. And again, us living righteous doesn't earn us eternal life. It's always a free gift, right? Always a free gift. And I think there's a sense in which this whole section speaks to both believers and unbelievers. For anyone who is an unbeliever, this is definitely a call to obedience of faith, to obey the gospel call, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven. It is that call. If you want eternal death, just keep going the path that you're going. But if you want eternal life, put your faith in Jesus Christ. But... There is something for believers here as well, and that is a reminder, first of all, of our union with Christ and how we should present our lives to him to be used by him for his end purposes. We should remember that our position in Christ means something, and being under grace and not under law doesn't mean that we're free to sin, but that we are to pursue righteousness. It's a good reminder. 
Bill McRae, an author, tells the story of a man living in Africa. And one day he heard someone screaming outside of his home. And he grabbed his gun and he rushed out to where he saw the man lying on the ground, bleeding profusely and writhing in pain. He quickly looked around and he saw a lion that looked like it was about ready to finish off its prey. He quickly raised his gun and he shot the lion and killed it. And after many days had passed, he, he was in his house. He looked out his window and he saw a bunch of people coming towards his home. And in the front of that group of people was the young man who he had saved from certain death. And the man, uh, when they arrived, he, he went outside and he says, what, what, are you, what are you all doing here? And, and the young man that he had saved replied, by saying that he had come to be the servant of the man who had saved his life. And, and the man explained, that's not necessary, you don't, you don't have to do that. A, a thanks will, will be enough. And he, the man explained that that couldn't be the case. It's not a matter of appreciation or thankfulness that was pushing his decision but a matter of the obligation that he had because of the culture of the people you see when someone was saved from certain death by someone else they became obligated by law to become that person's servant for life now as you can understand that story is very similar to what Paul is describing in our passage today at the end of chapter 6 as believers we've been set free, and we've been saved from certain death, right? Eternal death. That is what our previous master would have paid us when our new master has given us eternal life. He's saved us from certain death, and we are under obligation. It's good to thank him and appreciate what he's given, but we are under obligation, and that word is found several times in Paul's writing. We're obligated to serve him for the rest of our lives. It's not so much a matter of appreciation. That's good, but it's a matter of understanding something. Our position in Christ. We're united to him. We are sanctified, saved and sanctified in him, and thus we are his possession. He owns us. He bought us at a great cost. His blood was shed to purchase us. And... He is our master. He owns us. So, back to my questions, or Paul's questions, that relate to the questions I asked you. Is it okay for us to continue to, to sin once we've been delivered because the superabounding grace of God will be highlighted by our sinful lifestyle? May it never be. Is it okay for us to commit specific acts of sin because we are under grace and not law? (laughs) May it never be. May it never be. We must understand that because of our union with Christ, we are under grace and not law. It doesn't free us to sin. Rather, his grace compels us. Compels us to pursue righteousness. That's exactly what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7. I'm compelled to honor Christ because I'm a new creature by what he's done for me. So summing all this up, Paul's essentially saying to believers, 
because you are dead to sin. Not dead in sin, but dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Live. Live. Live like you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 6. Maybe we should end with this question. Who's your master? Who's my master? Is it sin? Or is it God? Depending on your answer to that, there's entirely different paths and ends. Choose wisely. Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the beautiful gospel, this message that explains to us not only what you did to provide us with your righteousness, what an awesome price you paid, the giving of your son, and explains to us our union with him and how that should impact us, not only in the position as it impacted us, we have in Christ, but also the way that we live. It impacts that. Should. Absolutely should. And so help us to be people who live like we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Help us to honor you as your slaves owned by you. And Lord, I'd rather be nowhere else than to be your slave, your servant. Because you brought me into a place of freedom. That's what slavery to righteousness really is. Freedom to live within the boundaries that you set up for a life that will be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and thankfulness and all those other fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law that would condemn us. So thankful for that. It's a beautiful place that you've brought us into, a beautiful position and a wonderful practice. Lord, I pray that if there's someone that really doesn't know you and they've seen that this morning, that they would turn and seek forgiveness from you. That they would declare in the quiet of their heart even that they want to be forgiven and they would believe, put their faith in Jesus and his sacrifice for them. Become a child of God and at that moment be totally changed. Thank you too for the food that we're going to eat. We pray that as we enjoy that, what you've provided to sustain us, our life, uh, that we would seek to glorify you in our conversation. Pray all of this for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen.